Now there is a personal car that has exactly what we're looking for. Taurus! Now there's an American car with the shape and the feel we've never seen before. A new kind of small car is here. The new Sprint from Chevrolet. I have found my new car. The Chrysler LeBaron series for 1982. LeBaron combined. The old Delta 88 is the family car that didn't forget the family. I've been driving a Lincoln since long before anybody paid me to drive one. It's hard to be an eco-warrior, but it's easy to drive like one. Sprint. I'm no other car. That's why we Hello and welcome back to the Global Inquirer. We're an undergraduate research podcast that uses case studies to explain how global trends are impacting real lives. I'm joined here today with Emma Ross, a foreign affairs major, and Tyler Hinkle, a double major in history and Latin American studies, and a minor in urban planning. We are looking at the future of cities, kind of how they've been built, how they should be built, and how they are being built. Introducing the all-new self-driving car. It does the driving for you, so you can catch up on the more important things in life. So, Tyler, what did we just listen to there? What does that all mean? So what we just listened to was a commercial on driverless cars. And as you know, this is coming to be a very large trend in automobile uh, manufacturers looking to take cars onto the streets without actually having a driver. So you can eat, shave do all everything you need to do in the morning while your car drives you to work. And something that comes up with this is to ask yourself, well, how do we get to this point? And that's what I kind of want to throw to you, Balthazar and Emma, is why do you think we have a car culture in the United States? What do you think that sort of started off with? Mm, um, well, I mean, I guess it was just we had all those roads. We needed to get things from point A to point B uh, easier than trains, maybe. I, I'm, I'm really not sure. Could be that Americans like to be in control. If you're the driver of your own car, that means that you get to decide when to leave, when to come back instead of being controlled by a bus schedule. That's actually a really good point that Emma has because part of the propaganda, I like to use that word because it was propaganda, to get people to buy cars was this idea of it being the antithesis of communism. Uh, to own your own home, to own your own car, that was the idea of Americanism. That didn't really start there during the Red Scare Cold War period. It actually has roots much deeper. So I had the chance to interview Professor Monenschein, who is a professor with the Urban Planning Department here at UVA, and he uh, specializes in transportation planning. And he wanted to bring up this point about a book written by Professor Norton, who's a historian here at UVA, who discusses the history behind why car-centric development is the way it is. Um, and he actually goes back to talking about horse carriages, and that's where the roots are. You know, Peter Norton, who is um, a historian here at, at UVA, mm-hmm. wrote a book called Fighting Traffic, where, you know, which really talks about the 19-teens and 20s and, you know, the advent of the car initially in American cities. Mm-hmm. And how, you know, planners really were very culpable in allowing, you know, the transition from streets where people could walk safely, or not safely, they'd get run over by horses just as much <laughs> yeah. as they get run over by cars. But they were allowed to be in the street and, and you know, kind of was, set up yeah. shops and do all these things. 
all of that was a decision, a collective decision that, you know, that planners were as much of a part of as engineers. Now, here's where I want to blame engineers. Okay. Good. And developers. Okay. Yeah. No, no. And then let's get into blaming engineers. But, um, but I think that, you know, we're at that moment again. So I think the mm -hmm. solutions are actually pretty clear how we might deal with all of this mm -hmm. and do better than we do now um, without human drivers. But I think it's, it's, a, big, it's a big if if well, we have the wherewithal to do this. There was a lot of intention behind making sure there were cars on the roads. It was already a thing that you saw people driving carriages with horses. There was actually a big issue when cars first came out that people were very scared of cars and they actually had to have a, like a fake horse on, in, in the front of the car so then people wouldn't be freaked out that there's a carriage just driving around on its own you had the chance to you know, look into that. It's very interesting images. But this, this whole movement towards uh, car development really began with the early 1900s uh, with the birth of the automobile industry, uh, especially in Detroit, where we see kind of the convergence of carriage manufacturing and steelwork. Once these two came together, coupled with the manufacturing line by Henry Ford, there was a mass production of automobiles in the 1920s. So there was a real push after the Great Depression to want to restart the economy. You see roots in the ideas of this in a documentary called The City, which is from 1931. Basically what this documentary shows is how rural life, having waterfalls, birds, nature, that is what a real city is about. But pollution and car traffic that is everything that people don't want in life. You see this coupled with the FHA, the Federal Housing Administration, in 1934, when they push for loans to be provided for individuals to move out to the suburbs. So this subsidization of suburbanization actually aided with the development of a car-centric development in the United States because when you live outside the city, you have no option but to drive to, to work and back home. Then in 1940, at the New York World Fair, there was the GM Futurama exhibit, which was the first ideas of highways that could actually cut through the center of cities, allowing for the new suburban dwellers to be able to get all the amenities that urban dwellers have. There are a lot of racially-based undertones to this story due to how loans were given and who loans were given to. And you see this followed with the Housing Acts in 1949, which allowed for the development of public housing on former blighted property, and then the Housing Act of 1954, which allowed for urban renewal. We talked about this in a previous podcast about the urban renewal in Charlottesville, which is a good example of how urban renewal was used to build highways and transit through cities with McIntyre Ridge here in Charlottesville. It's a giant road. It's really hard to cross. Well, you see this in everywhere. Like you see it in Detroit. You see it in Chicago. They actually built them through neighborhoods to separate neighborhoods, but also to destroy homes. Okay, so this is this is like Robert Moses type stuff here, just destroying neighborhoods for these mega highways, uh, intending to decrease commuter time. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. The kind of people that Jane Jacobs was fighting against, and it's interesting too. Because at the same time we see this development of interstates through cities, there was a push for automobile manufacturers to take out their biggest competitor who they saw as being public transit. 
So here in Charlottesville and many other places, there were these things called streetcars, which allowed for people to move faster. Um, you see them in San Francisco still and a couple other cities. But basically, one of the largest stories was out of L.A. It's well known. It's called the Great American Streetcar Scandal, where the automobile companies bought up the streetcar and then cut funding for it, and then it was gone. And so what people had to do is they had to rely on cars. So if you've ever seen Who Framed Roger Rabbit, you may have heard sort of stories like this before. Maybe you thought it was just the evil villain, like none of this could be possibly be true. But if you actually listen to this clip, you'll understand how this actually is a very satirical take on what actually happened. Who's got time to wonder what happened to some ridiculous talking mice when you're driving by at 75 miles an hour? What are you talking about? There's no road past Toontown. Not yet. Several months ago, I had the good providence to stumble upon a plan of the city councils, a construction plan of epic proportions. We are calling it a freeway. To go back to Emma's statement earlier about American identity being, re it being really important for American identity to have your own car, to have your own home, you have to kind of wonder if things are different on the other side of the Cold War. Are Russian cities and developments the same as American? Is there still this idea of needing to have a car in order to survive? And I know, Emma, you looked into this a little bit, so do you think you can tell us a little bit about what things look like in Russia? Yeah, so taking a look at the antithesis of America and looking at Russia and their idea of transportation, definitely during the Cold War or the Soviet Union, there was more of an idea of togetherness. And instead of the car, which is very individualistic, you would see a bunch of people using public transportation, which would be more efficient. You can transport masses of people across different places. And the metro was kind of the height of Soviet transportation. You would go down and you would see they would make it a spectacle. There would be artwork down there, propaganda. You would get to see very decorated, articulate pieces there. And it would also be extremely efficient to get people for, uh, across the city. It's almost similar to uh, the D.C. metro that we have now. You can use it to get basically anywhere. And the maps look similar, too. But you go down the escalator, and it goes down forever because um, they were thinking they could also use it as, like, a bomb shelter during World War II or the Cold War. But they've made major improvements up to today to modernize it. You don't see the propaganda there anymore unless you count McDonald's commercials as propaganda. I do, yeah. <laughs> I had the opportunity to talk to a good friend of mine, Margarita Zhigolova, to ask her what the student or the university student perspective is on getting around in the city. Are cars as important or are other methods of transportation more useful? And so her point of view is that, you know, you could take the metro or bus or even if you're in a rush, you could take a taxi, but there's no need for anyone to have a car because it's so easy to get public transportation, especially as a student. I think Moscow has changed so much for the last years. Uh, the most important thing is that our capital became much bigger. As we say, Moscow is growing all the time. For example, 71 metro stations were opened only for last eight years. And uh, yeah, it became cleaner and more comfortable for citizens. Yeah, so I want to say thank you so much, Margarita, for the clip. I miss you so much, and I hope you're having a great time at university. I think that's really interesting, what you're talking about, with the perspective of what it's like in Russia, which is a very different sort of development, because actually in, in Russia, they, they, it was normal to plan. Here in the United States, it's actually seen as, as communist to actually have a, a community plan for the entire country, the national plan. Um, 
kind of curious, what does it look like in something that's out of that red scare sort of feel? I know you did some research on Japan. Yeah, so let's travel all the way even further east. So in comparison, Moscow has a population of about 12 million. The case study that I took in Japan is from Fukuoka, which uh, prefecture, which has a population of about 5 million. So still pretty big. It's actually an airport city. So in comparison, the way in which this city is accessible is to trains, buses, and actually even more so bicycles. Um, you can use the bicycles to get to the train station a lot more often. You can get, use them to get to the store. It's very walkable. And similar to Moscow, you don't see a lot of cars here. I mean, it's possible, you know, maybe family size, but especially if you're near the city, you don't need one because there's so much public transit. And also, since we're looking at the future of cities, something important to note is pollution I wanted to touch on a little bit because I got so much great information from my friend Keigo Nishikawa, who's studying at the University of Nebraska Kearney, who was born and raised in Fukuoka Prefecture. Um, so Keigo, in addition to giving me the information about getting around in Fukuoka, how useful the trains and buses are into getting into the city and how nobody really uses cars, um, in addition to speaking with me about that, he also touched upon um, a problem that they had there with clean water back in 2001, and um, their prefecture dealed with that problem, but once they were able to pass better legislation about that and get rid of the problem there, they had an increase in population because they were able to build more condos. There's also a concern about pollution from China. So Fukuoka is located in um, southern Japan, kind of near South Korea, so they still get a lot of pollution from China. And one thing they have to do that's very different from here in the U.S. is they actually have to check PM 2.5 or particulate matter or yellow sand levels in before leaving the house. And if the levels are too high, they'll put on a face mask. It's the same sort of thing that you see people wearing if they're sick. So if the levels are too high, you're going to put on the mask before you leave. So hopefully we won't see an increase of this in the future, but also if pollution levels and if global trends continue the way that they are, um, it's an issue we might be seeing in more areas of the world, maybe even where we are. And I also wanted to say thank you so much to Keigo Nishikawa for providing me with so much uh, relevant information about development in Japan. Thank you so much for looking into that, Emma, and finding these perspectives from Fukuoka and Moscow. I think that they are very informative in letting us know that American issues of car-centric development are not always the same as other countries due to the way America was developed, but there are issues that are similar. I think Professor Peter Elmland touches on this very well. Half of the world population is now living in cities. How many times have you read that? According to statistics, the West is already super urbanized. You know, about 80% are living in urban areas. But what about sprawl then? If we are already super urbanized, why do we discuss this sprawl thing then? Now it became very interesting because the statistics about cities is based on administrative borders. Not on the city as we perceive it, you know, streets, parks and public space and that stuff. So if we are talking about the real city, it is not true that 50% of the population is living in cities. I would say in Sweden, 5-10%. A lot of this is occurring in the Global South, and as you'll hear with Professor Bassett here in a bit, who is also a professor with the Urban Environmental Planning Department and a partner with the Institute of Humanities and Global Cultures. Her research focuses on public policy, as well as African urbanism and Global South urbanism as a whole. We all know the suburbs actually are probably a dominant urban form in the United States. And I grew up in a suburb, 
maybe you grew up in the suburbs. I think most of the UVA student population probably grew up in suburbs, a lot of the Nova kids in particular. And so I think what's fair to say about the future of cities, if I followed mm -hmm. you know, quite where we're going, yeah. is that we're having a very pro-urban moment right now. Most cities have about 30% of their land base covered in roads, um, which is, when you think about it, that's a chunk of, mm -hmm. of land to have under that's tarmac, right. right? Well, Kenya, because it basically has been operating on sort of its colonial plans and hasn't had uh, both the planning capacity or the infrastructure mm -hmm. um, funding to do sort of the scale of investment we have, it has something like, you know, 10% yeah. of the land base yeah, under right. roads. Some of the worst traffic congestion is in the developing world because they don't have the roads to accommodate it, but the cars are coming in and the aspiration to be mm -hmm. a car society is so great. Mm -hmm. So I think it's acute um, that, you know, the needs to sort of rethink development in places like, uh, you know, Kenya, East Africa, um, other parts of the global south. The other image that comes to mind when I think about this is if you've ever been to Hanoi or to Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, where there's this... You know, they haven't adopted the automobile, but they have the, the motorcycle, the little motorcycle and the seas of people mm -hmm. like swarming on the roads. Mm -hmm. You know, mobility makes life easier. People want an easier life, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. You get your, trans your, your goods to market faster, mm -hmm. you know. And so the idea that we've shared forms of transport that they talked about, a lot of that is it's just it's available transport. It's maybe not the preferred form. I think the preferred form in the global south is the single occupancy vehicle like it is here. And so what I keep hoping is relative mm -hmm. to you know, environmental protection in, in the global south, but also sort of city form is maybe they can learn from some of our mistakes, you know, yeah. um, and not, not follow us down that, that particular route. Yeah. Um, but the last question about where people might go carless, I would put my money in Europe Wait, Scandinavia. Well, and it, it is happening. It's happening. Yeah. 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 It's, it's happening there before mm -hmm. it happens anywhere else. Exactly. That, that's, yeah. that's true. Um, you know, Even with their weather. Yeah. In Scandinavia, <laughs> yeah. No, but, you know, every so often we'll get an, you know, an article in a planning magazine mm -hmm. about, you know, some town in Spain that, that closes its roads or, right. you know, that only allows cars in at certain mm -hmm. off hours. And right. Makes, you know, other streets pedestrian. The Wonerf was a big thing for a while. Yeah, the Wonerf. If Wonerf. that's how we is say that how you pronounce it, it's a know. Dutch word, so neither of us have the, yeah, you know, it's supposed to be a vehicle yeah, the qualifications or, yeah. to say it. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, the idea of a of a shared street that you know isn't but, isn't restricted to right. any, any type of and doesn't really tell the drivers what to do, so they have to crawl through it. You know, metropolitan, yeah. you know, mass transit systems, the scale of the new urbanization, and I, I'd be mm -hmm. curious what you have to. You know how how this mm -hmm. applies in African cities mm -hmm. that are urbanizing so fast. The scale is so great that mm -hmm. cars alone, everyone knows, can't cut it. It's right. just not going to work. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're so big, and they're going to be dense enough that you can't. It can't be Houston. It just can't be Houston. No. It's going to have to be a hybrid of Houston and Paris, which is really weird, and that's mm -hmm. going to be something mm -hmm. really different and new, and we'll see how livable it is. I mean, right now, they're very bad places to live in terms of air quality okay. and in terms of noise levels and, you know, all of these sorts of basic environmental issues. Mm -hmm. GM, General mm -hmm. Motors, has mm -hmm. just produced its first electric bike, foldable. 
So it's in yesterday's New York Times or Washington Post, but I think it's in the mm -hmm. Times. And I thought it was really interesting to see the automakers aren't not seeing the writing on the wall, right? So when Portland put in its streetcars, um, so not its light rail, but its streetcars, they had to buy, uh, I think they were buying the streetcars from someplace in like Eastern, former Eastern Europe. Um, and that you're starting to see the automakers starting to think about going back into sort of markets that they haven't been in. So look at bicycles, look at rail. I mean, I'm, I know personally, I happened to take a urban planning class last semester and I learned a lot about these issues. But it does seem as if the our youth culture is kind of rising up and taking a more uh, community-based stance on how we're building our cities, how we're going to be getting around. Um, there's a Facebook page that I'm a part of, and it's called New Urbanist Memes for Transit-Oriented Teens. Um, and, you know, if you just look through it, it's all, it's all that Jane Jacobs rhetoric. It's all about kind of building that community city where everyone has that fair shot of, you know, getting good public transportation, having the ability to, you know, get from your home to your job to you know, those third environments where you can kind of live in a city and have a community. The suburbs are becoming a place where, um, where there might be a demand for transit, but they've been built not Without densely it. enough mm. to be walkable mm -hmm. or transit friendly or even to be bikeable. And so we're kind of in this, you know, not to be too dark about it, but we're kind of in a funny moment where people who have enough money still like their cars, you know, in the U.S. and really outside of the Even US if they too. use them just on the weekend, right? Yeah, yeah. Gotta get out of town. Yeah, and so we're having to find places to store cars still in mm. the center cities. You know, there's still lots of pressure for parking. Um, and at the same time, uh, you know, the suburbs are still the growth area of of the U.S. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's mm -hmm. fair to say. Yeah. And, and so, um, so, you know, unfortunately we see things, and, and I'm saying unfortunately because they have sustainability. I'm, I'm speaking from a sustainability point of view. SUV sales are continuing to go up. Right. You know, people are still making choices that with their disposable income, they want big cars. Um, all of that said, as planners, we're really trying to change the narrative. Yeah. But unless you are enabled to have mobility a different way, you don't do it. So all of this is good and well, teaching people the right practices and putting in the right policy and ensuring that, you know, the public is educated on these issues. But I think we also face the issue just as with who framed Roger Rabbit of these tycoons who want what the public does not exactly want. The professors touched on this with a case study in Nashville where the Koch brothers tried to prevent light rail transit. The mm. mayor left in a scandal. She was For having transit. an affair with her. Oh, that part yeah, I don't sorry, know. I wonder anyway. if that'll make it so, into our broader brothers, conversation. The Koch brothers <laughs> got super involved with defeating a referendum. Yes. A light rail referendum. A light rail referendum yeah, yeah. Um, because it's seen as very threatening to very major corporate interests. Um, so they got involved sort of politically. Um, but also, I think it is true, there's a certain thought about, theoretically, it's really a great idea to live in a walkable, bikeable place and give up my car. But there's still, at least for my generation, mm -hmm. and this is a big thing we talk about in planning, is the fact that younger people now get their licenses later and later, right? It's not as big a deal. For me, God, if I didn't have a license by 16, I was such a loser, right? <laughs> the license was the thing. So the idea of sort of not having your automobile mm -hmm. and having that part of your persona, yeah. At least for an older generation, the automobile is like critically 
part of being an American. And there was that interesting point that the professors made about Uber. Many people see it as the future and it has, you know, good solutions for decreasing traffic. But as we found, when the option is there, people tend to abuse it rather than use it for what could be a more altruistic purpose. We find that, unfortunately, um, people are calling Ubers and Lyfts in situations where they would have never used a vehicle in the mm -hmm, past. So mm -hmm. the UCLA. example of UCLA, <laughs> which is not alone because I've done this by like show of sheepish hands Even and, here. Um, ah, here at UVA yeah, to say, yeah. what about all of you? And, and then, yeah, I think it's happening here, too. Um, apparently, there are 11,000 um, Uber and Lyft rides called within UCLA's campus every day. And so that means not every even day. leaving campus. Just, just drive around the campus. Driving around campus. I mean, it's big. But. Um, certainly, and, and it happens to be my alma mater, so I'm particularly interested. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't call a taxi to get from one end of campus to the other. You'd either take the university kind of, you know, shuttle system, or you would just... Um, walk. Walk or bike. <laughs> and so those are lost, you know, those are trips that are now in vehicles. Mm. And so, so yeah, so, so there's that issue. And so I think the worries about, um, you know, what are we going to do when cars drive themselves, that'll become even easier. Now, I think you're completely right. This, this, I, this horrifying idea of a zero occupancy vehicle, which is a new thing, which oh, yeah. basically, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, a car that has no one in it circling around. Um, we're going to have to think really hard about how quickly we give up parking, if that's the alternative. Um, we will have to think a lot about this issue of what is transit and what is private ownership of mm -hmm, vehicles. Mm -hmm. So, um, all of, I mean, you know, again, the Detroit legend is partially, you know, a legend of fins, you know, kind of tail fins on your car and cool lights and, mm -hmm. you know, all kinds of things. Um, you probably could say it better than I could because you grew up there, but, um, People may not want to give up having their own car. And if that's the case, we're going to see a lot of cars circling rather than this really laudable idea of mobility as a service, which is kind mm -hmm. of what Uber right. and Lyft are, from, yeah. you know, where, you know, where yeah. basically we stop owning cars and then hopefully mm -hmm. the car will never be empty too long because there will be, you know, there will only be enough cars on the road mm -hmm. to satisfy the trips that are happening. So at I time, think the issue of the, 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 the driverless, the, the, the zero occupancy vehicle circling and circling. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are public policy yeah. approaches to that that can certainly be done. Definitely. It's really interesting that you talk about that, how people actually want to use Uber more and they want to use driverless cars more because it's more efficient. And that's what we see with car commercials today. You know, it's more fuel efficient. You're going to get more bang for your buck. You're going to be able to use your car longer. And what this is called is Jevons paradox. So when you increase the efficiency of something, but in order to hopefully decrease the use of that issue, so one thing could be maybe we're making more efficient, uh, fuel efficient cars to deal with our oil crisis, but that's actually causing people to want to use cars more. Got a lot of, you know, a lot of people talked about it in the 90s and it's kind mm -hmm. of faded mm -hmm. since then. Yeah, but, um, but this idea that people should live where they work and, um, they should be able to, you know, not have as long of a commute so that it would so that our system mm -hmm. wouldn't be overtaxed and it would be more sustainable. I think we have to think about that more broadly now. It may not be going to a job. It may not be a commute. You know, again, you know, in our in our Amazon world and in our mm -hmm. telecommuting world, um, in our you know, internet-based world, we don't really need 
to go to drive to our jobs all the time. Not that plenty of people don't, don't but it's changing. Mm -hmm. It's changing and it's yeah. changing surprisingly quickly. So, Emma, you all are from Northern Virginia, which is vastly suburbanizing. What is your take on the future of Northern Virginia? Is Northern Virginia going to sort of engulf the rest of like Central Virginia, <laughs> like Professor Bassett and Monenshine kind of are talking about? Or like what what have you kind of seen with this, especially with now the move with Amazon? Oh my gosh, Amazon is gonna make Nova so much more crowded. But even in the past year since I've come to college, I think there are like two more grocery stores in my home hometown. Um, lots of road improvements. Um, definitely, it's been getting more crowded. Yeah. But it makes me so jealous of other countries, too, where they can just walk to places or, like, jump on, like, the public transit or something because, like, Springfield, Prince William, this area, you need a car to go, at, like, to the grocery store. That's something, actually, that Professor Bassett talked about when she lived in Portland. So I lived in Portland, Oregon before I moved to Charlottesville. What was my big, oh, God, I can't believe I have to do this. I had to buy a car. <laughs> I didn't own a car in Portland, Oregon. I took the bus to work. I had home delivery of groceries. I could walk to yeah. restaurants. It had a great transit system. Charlottesville, there is no way I could live here without a car. But in Portland, I could get you know a zip car for a weekend to go out of the town, so I didn't even bother to have a car of my own to demand, mm -hmm. to make a demand on. Yeah. But I was enabled by my environment. I was enabled by the policy framework within which I was living. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, I think planners and, you know, uh, other actors, even, even engineers, are trying to do the right things, you know, and trying to... Oh, I to... think engineers in particular have sort of seen the light. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an important thing to say. You yeah. know, we're not yeah. alone in this at all. So, Professor Monenschein has this nice discussion about ways. Mom called it WASI for the longest Wazi. time. <laughs> <laughs> A city in New Jersey called Leonia near the George Washington Bridge. Oh, wow, yeah. That has passed a law saying that no one not from Leonia can drive on any but one street during rush hours because they've been so slammed by this new use of technology to mm -hmm. route around traffic. Mm -hmm. I think that what it means, though, is that cities are starting to think about this. And there's actually an explosion that really we haven't started to yet a lot from an academic point of view, but mm -hmm. cities like Los Angeles are creating new data specifications around what the streets are, how they're laid out, whether there are bike lanes, whether there are e-scooters on them, whether there's transit, mm -hmm. whether there's private mm -hmm. cars. And ultimately, the thought is, all of those things should be controllable remotely. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to have to have a new way of thinking about performance standards for streets that aren't just mm -hmm. simply, um, you know, we don't want decibel levels over 75 or 80 or whatever mm -hmm. it is, but we should be able to say how much traffic there is on a particular street. We should be able to say that we want to have, you know, a walkable street, mm -hmm. you know, on Saturday, you know. And that all of those sorts of, or that we want a bike lane to appear, you know, as if by magic, except it won't be by magic. Ubers and Lyfts do do a better job than taxi drivers do in, mm -hmm. in being willing to pick up, you know, African-Americans. Mm -hmm. You know, so we can improve, but mm -hmm. I don't want to be, I, yeah, I don't want to be Pollyanna about right, it. You yeah. know, I think, I think these are huge challenges. And the privacy implications are going to be interesting. Mm -hmm. um, we won't be in control of, yeah. you know, our cars We're scraping or where we big go data and... as we speak all the time, and you really don't know. I mean, I make an assumption that I have no privacy. Yeah. 
And that's just, I've decided that's the best way to go yeah. through life. And Los Angeles yeah. DOT engineers mm -hmm. would like to know where every single thing and every single person is on their streets at all mm -hmm. times because mm -hmm. it's useful information. From our big discussion here, kind of drawing everything together, a lot of this is based on policy and based on the people in power and who have power. It's all part of a plan. Places that have enabled this kind of growth mm -hmm. to go on are, you know, oil-rich countries who have oh, very, yeah. very cheap fuel, right? Um, Absolutely. And, and mm -hmm. that is something that you certainly see. I mean, Europeans come here and they're blown away at how cheap our gas is, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that is like, talk about a perfect place where you can make a difference. Change the price at the pump and you will change behavior. And we, we oh, could yeah. do it. Mm -hmm. And we're not. Not so far. Not with any lasting impact. No. You know? Well, uh, I mean, there's a big, you know, yeah. it, it could be quite regressive if you, if you change them in rural areas where people have no options, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, the yellow jackets, right, in, in Paris, right? The big fight over the carbon tax yeah. there, right? Mm -hmm. but, but just the yeah. point being, even mm -hmm. in New York, it's yeah. problematic. But most of the U.S., it's, it's truly a problem. Problematic, yeah. But, you know, I, I think, you know, the idea of if we're going to make driving cost more, um, then yeah, we, we have to think about things like transfer payments or making sure that our, our sustainability goals don't have equity impacts. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think, you know, those ideas are out there. I mean, no, yeah. no one, I, I mean, there's plenty of smart planners and economists that know how to do this. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. The automakers are late to the game, but they're definitely looking for ways to survive. Um, and I think they may be actually seeing that our market share even though the SUV is still with us and the McMansion Absolutely. is still with us, there may be a longer-term trend that won't won't enable them to continue the way I, they are. I think that's right, and I, and I think they you know they're they're smartly I think hedging their bets, mm -hmm. and yeah. I think you know they're building SUVs at the same time as they're they're building e-bikes and, and bolts and right? and bolts, which is actually the car that I have. Very I have nice. a GM a, electric car, but um, I wish he could have a Tesla. It would be yeah. cooler, but. He's pretty not cool with the bolt. One. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. you don't. Like, you don't. I like, like having a bolt. I like not having a Tesla. Okay. All right. uh, for all you Tesla drivers out there, that's great. Though. But um, um, I, they're they're very cool cars. Elon Musk is yeah. is okay. He's yeah. a little wacky, but uh, yeah. Hi, you know. Elon. But yeah. But um, but I, I think um, yeah. I I do think they're hedging their bets wisely, and mm -hmm. and and yeah. Um, you know, in the end, it's just going to be a question of the policies we set, and other countries are 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 setting the policies to require, you know, the you know the end of the internal combustion engine, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. you know, setting policies mm -hmm. to limit the number of cars mm -hmm. that they're going to sell. Um, yeah. I think a cultural shift would be good too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it is it's hip in Portland to take the bus to work, right? It's certainly hip to ride your bike to work. So if we could get you know more of this, um, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, who do we need to get on a bike to make it be a super, you know, hip thing to do? Beto so, O'Rourke. Beto O'Rourke. Okay, maybe Beto O'Rourke and, and Ocasio need to start yeah, biking, biking to work, and then we will see that change. You never know. So that's all we have for this week. If you like this episode, be sure to drop a like or comment on SoundCloud, uh, where you can also check out all of our other episodes and past seasons. And stay up to date with The Global Inquirer on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And be sure to tune in next week where we sit down with our brand new researchers, Ari and Gabriella. Very excited to have them on board. Uh, and we're going to have a big discussion about Iran in general and kind of U.S. obsession with the country. So see you next week. <laughs>